You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like. Sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program. bore the punishment and the penalty for the believers so that we might have eternal life. And the effect of his death and resurrection that here in Exodus is symbolized by the tree brings salvation as it eradicates all curses that come your way. Apparently there is in South Africa a certain river which water cannot be drunk until branches of a certain tree are placed in it. And then the bitterness which is in the stream is deposited at the bottom and the water becomes drinkable. Perhaps God used a natural process to perform this miracle. But then again, since in the desert the waters were scarce and bitter, all trees around it, if any, must have been also dead trees. And the miracle may lie in the fact that a dead tree gave life to a dead water. In here we can see that it is through the death of the Messiah that life comes. In this illustration may bring to the mind of the reader the tree of life as well, that is first mentioned in Genesis and then reappears in Revelation. After their sin, Adam and Eve were not allowed to touch the tree of life. However, that tree is mentioned again at the end when we go to the New Jerusalem. It is there. Look at Revelation 22.2. And this tree is right now in the New Jerusalem. It says, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for what? For the healing of the nations. This tree, as the one in Mara, is symbol of both eternal life and continual blessings. And speaking of that tree, Jesus promised to the church of Ephesus and to all believers of all ages that they will eventually partake of it. Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That is when our salvation will be complete. As Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat of the tree, the believers are promised the right to eat from that tree itself, so that we will attain that state of non-sinning anymore. Here we see that the waters of Mara have been sweetened. And what of the water itself? What does the water itself represent? In John 4.14, a great passage, we read that Jesus spoke to the woman of Samaria. See what he says there. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The water Jesus gives provides continual satisfaction of needs and desire. This is the antitype, right, of the water of we have in Mara. And we remember during the Feast of Tabernacle, the feast that symbolizes the messianic time, the millennium, Yeshua said in John 7:37, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink, because there we have it sweetened already. It's there for our salvation. This is what the, the healed water of Mara pointed to. Our satisfaction, what it says is that our satisfaction can only be found in the Messiah. Take this world, strip it of its eternal value, and what do you get? Nothing. Worse, you get the wilderness. And as Jesus speaks of the healing power of the tree of life, and as Peter spoke of the healing that Jesus provides with his death and resurrection, notice also the last words of verse 26 of Exodus 15. 
God says, for I am the Lord who heals you. Right? He is our healer. Whatever problem you might have, He can heal you and He will heal you if you go to Him. It is in fact the Lord that had become that tree. Because He represents Himself as that tree that sweetened the water. It is the Lord that became that tree. It is the Lord that had come down into the body of a man to die for our sin. It is This is, by the way, the great beauty of salvation that He became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and He dwelt with us. And He became that tree to sweeten the water so that we might have eternal life into the new Jerusalem. listening to Solace Radio. When I was a logistics engineer in the aerospace business, this is a presentation that I actually gave to my fellow engineers many, many years ago. It was an example presentation of what a logistics engineer does. And you may have heard of a systems engineer, an electrical engineer, a design engineer, those kinds of things. Well, there's such a thing as a logistics engineer, and that was my profession. And in the course of my working for the aerospace business, I used to use these same principles, engineering principles, that we used to use in the space program. They would come to our company uh, with a spacecraft, such as a satellite, and you can't just pop some satellite up there and hope it works. You need to do some analysis to determine that it will work. And so one of the things that we used to do is that we would review the design of a satellite to determine whether or not it will survive in space and accomplish its mission. And we use a series of engineering principles and disciplines to do that. That's one form of what we used to do. The other form that we used to do is the things that were down on the ground, logistics people, are the people who decide how many spare parts are needed, how you will repair it, how you will operate the equipment, write the tech manuals, do all the technical training, and that was my area of expertise. At the height of my career, I was a vice president of logistics for the Titan Corporation. And when I was, at the time that I did this, I was the senior logistics engineer working for IBM on a mobile ground satellite program. My boss was the international president of the Society of Logistics Engineers. And when you worked for then Jerry Starr, uh, the president, you joined the Society of Logistics Engineers. And uh, I was on staff, so I joined that wonderful uh, professional organization. And we used to have chapter dinners every month, and us guys that were on staff to Jerry, it was expected of us that we would make presentations and we would teach people about logistics and logistics engineers because who wants to know about logistics, right? Uh, so we had to come up with zippy different presentations to kind of explain to people what, what logisticians did. And in the course of, because I taught Torah and was in biblical studies, on a whim, literally on a whim, was asked to make a presentation to explain to a mixed audience what logistics uh, people did. And I said, how about a logistics engineering analysis on Noah's Ark? It was a design system to accomplish a particular mission. And everybody said, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't we go ahead and do it? So in the course of two weeks, I took my staff and we did a full logistics engineering analysis on the story of Noah's Ark, building a model, running the tests, doing all the normal engineering things that we would do, and as a result, produced this presentation, which was given to my professional fellow engineers. As a result of this presentation, it was received extremely well. In fact, it became the model presentation to explain to other people what logisticians do by taking this illustration of something out of the Bible. You see, the Bible is a specification. It gives the design criteria for a particular device, in this case, Noah's Ark. By then taking that design criteria and using our principles, we go through to determine if the design is feasible and if it's possible, if it's probable that it would operate. We have to make a determination. Will this design work or not even before we build it? And so that's what this presentation is about. As a result, many other audiences, particularly Christian and religious audiences, have been very interested because I'm about to tell you that not only was the story of Noah's Ark feasible, it's highly probable that it's exactly as the Scripture says. And we're going to prove how that would be possible, that Noah's Ark would accomplish what it needs to do. 
So, the title of our presentation is The Logistics of Noah's Ark. Most of you are familiar with Noah's Ark by this little image down here. And uh, I'll never forget, I have a little book at home that my daughter used to have. It was called The Little Golden Book of Noah's Ark. You ever seen those little books the kids get? You know, it's got one of these arcs down here. But mine isn't quite the same way hers was. It had a little door in the side that was flopped out, and we had a couple of giraffes coming on board and, you know, so forth. And I'll never forget, my daughter, who was very small at the time, she looked at that illustration. She said, you know, the door was in the side, and she said, Dad, uh, how did the ark work if the door is below the water? Which is a very good point. I mean, how's the thing going to work? You know, if the door is below the water, it's going to leak and it's going to sink. And this kind of a boat here is absolutely wrong from what the scripture says was actually built. It was not a boat that was built. It was an ark that was built. So let's uh, review real quickly what most people have heard about the story of Noah's ark. And I'm certain that you've heard all of these basic things. Noah is told to build an ark to set of dimensions. The ark is built. Two of every animal are loaded up in it. The rains come for 40 days and 40 nights, and the ark comes to rest on a mountain. That is not what the Bible says. That's what everybody gets told. But that's not at all what the Bible says. In fact, let's examine specifically what the Bible really does say. Or, but let me give you a couple of definitions. Go ahead. I need to give you a couple of definitions before we proceed. So what's logistics? Logistics is the process of having what you need, where you need it, when you need it. And in the case of the ark, we need to load this ark up with a whole bunch of animals and food, and it needs to survive a worldwide flood and safely bring everybody after one year, not for just 40 days and 40 nights. They're going to stay in this ark for a year, and they must survive this great cataclysmic judgment. Ark is not a boat. It is a box or a chest. And you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, before. An ark is a box. So the basic point that I want to make to you right from the beginning is Noah was a logistician who built a floating box. Next point. This is actually what the Bible actually says. Noah was told to build an ark with gopher wood. Hey, you're probably wondering what gopher wood is. Gopher wood is what Noah said to Shem when he said gopher wood. <laughs> With rooms or compartments. It was a highly compartmentalized uh, type structure. With pitch inside and out. It was wood that was then made waterproof inside and out. The length of which is 300 cubits, the width 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. Great, what's a cubit? You remember Bill Cosby years ago telling the joke, what's a cubit? You know. um, a cubit is the distance from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the hand. Every man has a cubit. So when he would go and build, he could measure. Typically, it's about 18 inches long. In some archaeological findings, we think it's maybe as long as 19.2 inches, but somewhere between 18 and 19 inches is a cubit. He was told to put a window, and the word, Hebrew word there is a very interesting word because it means a light. Put a light in the roof, a door in the side, and build three decks. This is all specifically from the book of Genesis. He is told of the unclean animals he is to bring to each. But of the clean animals, he is to bring by seven. And there's always been a debate amongst the rabbis as exactly what that mean. Is that seven pairs or is that just seven animals? And so one of the debates is, is it seven pairs or 14 animals of each species of the clean, which is a lot of animals, or is it just seven animals? And if you recall, Noah sacrificed at the end of the flood one male clean of every animal and if it was just seven, then maybe the odd uh, was the male, and maybe it was three pairs. And so one of the debates, one of the issues here is exactly how many of the clean animals did he actually bring. Finally, he was told, and the scripture tells us that, yes, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but the flood did not actually peak for 150 days, that the flood rose to the highest level at 150 days, and that he was actually in the ark for one full solar year with all those animals. So they have to survive for a full year once they go inside. Now let's talk about some of the conditions that Noah had to build the ark in. And the Bible tells us 
what the world was like at that time before the flood. In Genesis 2, 5 and 6, it says the atmosphere was a lot different than the atmosphere that we have on the earth today. In fact, we actually believe that the atmosphere had a double atmospheric pressure, that at sea level we have the air pressure at 15 pounds per square inch. We believe that the air pressure at that point may have been closer to 28 to 30 pounds per square inch, and there's some rationale and reasons for that. Part of it has to do with that the earth had never experienced direct sunlight. The scripture says it didn't rain in those days. It says that uh, the waters would came up from the ground through fountains and springs and a mist used to come up every day from God. That in effect, what there has was they believed that the earth was in fact enshrouded in a great canopy of clouds and that there was ice crystalline formed in the upper atmosphere and it was a little bit like living in a big terrarium. And as a result, all of the surface of the earth was luscious and green and full of plants and temperate uh, temperature, we didn't have cold and, and hot. It was all basically pretty calm, uh, you know, at that time. It also says that the diet of everybody in the world was vegetarian. Nobody ate meat. We didn't kill animals, you know, in that time. Animals went around eating other plants, you know, like man. We ate plants. At that point, animals hadn't been given to man to be food. The animal kingdom didn't prey on each other. They didn't eat each other either. They got along fine. And part of the restoration of the world is to return to a time, and it says the animal kingdom of the world is waiting for the restoration of all things in the creation when the Messiah returns to repair the world that they used to know too, you know, where they were all at peace with one another. And the lifespan of man is very interesting. This is one of the areas where critics of the Bible have always taken great issue with the Bible. Because it says that Adam lived to be 930 years old, Seth was 912, Enosh lived 905. It says Noah, when he was 500 years old, he was told to build the ark. And he later, you know, had a hundred years that he built the ark and the flood started at age 600 and he still lived to be 950 50 years old. The average age of all the men that are listed in the scripture, 912 years. 912 years. This is one of the areas where the critics uh, just really berate the Bible. You know what? You know what causes the aging process in the human? Direct sunlight. The world didn't have direct sunlight at that time. In fact, the scientific medical community says that if you could be kept from experiencing direct sunlight from the moment that you're born, that your body has the natural ability to live nearly a thousand years. That's what the medical community says today. It's direct sunlight that accelerates and brings on the aging process in us. And in this world, there was no direct sunlight. And guess what? The bodies they live, about 912 years. That's what the scripture says. As a result of the flood, then the, the ages of men begin to change. Next slide, please. The basic design of the ark. Its length was 300 cubits, width 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. And as I mentioned to you before, the question really is, how long is a cubit? So in this particular case, I'm going to use, for this analysis, we're going to use what we call a worst-case analysis. I'm going to look at the smallest cubit to make the smallest arc possible with the greatest number of passengers and to see and measure and see if this is feasible to happen. So I'm going to use an 18-inch cubit for, to measure this out. That means that the height, uh, the length, rather, of the arc was 450 feet long, that its height was 45 feet, its width was 75 feet. And you will notice that we have an interesting ratio there, what we call the length to beam ratio. The length to beam ratio is six to one. It's six times longer than the width of its beam. That's a very interesting number. That has been determined by hydrologists to be the most stable floating platform possible hydraulically. In fact, they design every major ship in the world to this ratio. Battleships are designed to this ratio. Aircraft carriers are designed to this ratio. Every major floating vessel is designed to this ratio for the ark. The capacity of the ark, it would have contained with an 18-inch cubit, it would have had contained over one and a half million cubic feet of capacity inside. Its deck area... Uh, for the total decks is 101,000 square, uh, thousand square feet. Now just think about your house. How many square feet in your house? If you have about 2,000 square feet, this is over 100,000 square feet of deck surface 
that is available inside of the ark. Each single deck, 33,750 square feet with three of those decks. Empty. The weight of the ark sitting would have, dis would have been 41,000 tons. It would have displaced four foot of seawater. In other words, sitting and floating empty, it would have set in the water about four feet. Fully loaded, it would have been 79,000 tons, and it would displace in the water 22 feet. I find that to be a very interesting number, because 22 feet would mean that half of the ark is out of the water, half of the ark is in the water. 45 feet is the total height of the ark. Therefore, at 50% buoyancy, it is the most stable floating pattern pattern that you can possibly have. And that's exactly what you need in the ark if you're going to be enduring a worldwide cataclysmic flood. You want the most stable floating pa uh, platform possible. Now I made a, go ahead and flip up the next one there. I've also made a model here that we'll kind of go through and we'll illustrate. The decks, there were, uh, there were three decks, a lower, a second, and a third deck, one door in the side, and a window, um, a roof, uh, a roof light. And again, like I said, this window was to provide light into the ark. This is a model that I constructed uh, to the ratio dimensions of what we've talked about uh, that is given in the Bible. And in this, I built three decks, just like it says, and I built accessing passageways up and down the length of the ark so that you can access into the ark. And if you'll know, there are many compartments in it, so it's a highly honey, um, honeycomb-type structure uh, to it. And by the way, that's a very important feature in the ark because that's what gives it its structural uh, integrity. Just the fact that I have these basic outside shapes is not enough. It, this, it would twist, and it would tear and break apart. But by building these compartments in here, uh, it gives it this great structure. Now, I'm not going to do this again with my model, but the first time I gave this presentation to demonstrate how strong this little model is in this structure, this is balsa wood. Everybody knows that's a very soft little modeling wood. You'll notice this half of the arc here I, um, is fully compartmentalized. In other words, the honeycomb underneath the deck has all the little compartment walls. When I first gave this presentation, I put this model on the floor and I stood on that part. I weigh over 200 pounds. I'm not going to do this to my model at the moment. I've already done it once, so I know it works. But <laughs> that's a very strong structure. Very strong structure. Very little torque that would have been in the twisting phase. Very strong, stable structure. Now, as I mentioned to you before, the arc was, and by the way, here's my one little door, you know, that would have served as the loading ramp for the loading of the arc. And uh, so we don't have a door down below, below the water line. The door is above the water line. We don't want a door below the water line. You know what I mean? I mean, that's like a screen door in a submarine. Um, you want it above the water line. And by the way, if you recount in the story of the ark, the one thing that Noah forgot to do was figure out how to shut the door. And it says that God shut the door, you know, for him. So he had used it as a loading ramp, but he didn't figure out a way to raise the door back up. And so God shut the door and sealed the door. And that's the reason why when Noah came to the rest, he couldn't use this door to unload the ark. This door's up in the air. You know, for, he built this thing with a, with a mound of dirt all around it. And so that the dirt all around it would have helped. And as the water came, it just floated it right up above out of that hole that he had built. And it's all loaded. But when he came to rest on Mount Ararat, well, this door doesn't serve him any purpose, and that's the reason why the Scripture says he chopped his way out of the ark. And as a result of chopping his way out of the ark, he compromised the structural integrity of the ark. So that the first time the ark shifted on the mountain as a result of the earthquake, it broke in two pieces, which is the way it has been found. Broken in two pieces. Because he had compromised it when he did it. Back many years ago, I was involved with Jim Irwin, the Apollo 15 astronaut, and one of his uh, things that he did, he was searching for Noah's Ark. And uh, in the course of his searching for Noah's Ark, along with a lot of other brethren, a piece of the Ark was brought back. And there's a piece of Noah's Ark right there. I'm going to pass it around the room for you to look. This is the real thing. This is a piece of wood that came off of Mount Ararat that is the testimony of men who said, we saw Noah's Ark.
So it really does exist, which, by the way, goes to prove that when he got that wood, which I believe was white oak, by the way, this is white oak, and he put that bituminous material on it, pitch, he made this wood virtually indestructible. Virtually indestructible. And to this day, it still exists. And there's a piece of it you know, for you to see. I'm going to pass that around. Everyone just get a sense of what it is. And uh, in the course of going out to lumber all the white oak just to make the outer structure, not the individual compartments inside, he would have had to have lumbered up 328,500 board feet of white oak. And white oak is very, very hard wood. Can you imagine lumbering up that number of board feet of wood? So that was quite a task for him to go to get that. And that's only the outer walls. That's not the internal compartments. That's just basic decks and just basic walls and structure. The, um, the bituminous material, if he had processed it, and, and uh, we believe it would have been a petroleum-type base material, just to make one coat, just to coat the ark one time with this water preservative, waterproofing material for the wood, and if he had processed or distilled it down to the point where he could do, like, say, um, 100 square feet out of a gallon, he would have had to process a minimum of 3,285 gallons just to do one coat. And since he knows this is the structural integrity of the ark that keeps it waterproof, I can assure you he would have put on more than one coat of this stuff on that wood. If you look at that piece of wood, you will find that that bituminous material has been soaked completely through that wood. And by the way, the piece that they cut was a very large piece, and the bituminous material had soaked and penetrated all the way through the entire piece of wood. This is just a sliver of it. So there was quite a bit of processing that was done by him to put that bituminous material into it. I believe that one of the key areas that he would have to have done, and this is what we had to do in our analysis, that we had to solve some problems called accessing and compartmentalization. Uh, accessing, you must be able, you can't just pack these animals in there back in holes and then start blocking it up. You need to be able to access every compartment in the ark. And so he had to come up with a structure to be able to get in and around to every compartment, just like in a ship where you'd be able to access into every compartment. So he would have to have done the same. I believe that he did it by building a center corridor uh, down through the center of each deck. And if you'll notice, that's what I've got right here, is a center corridor going down through it. Um, this next, uh, let me just mention here real briefly, the other issue is where do we put all the animals? We got a lot of animals. We got a lot of uh, birds. We got a lot of mammals, we got a lot of amphibians and reptilians, because anything that we have on the earth today has to have been on the ark and survived. And we have a lot of creatures running around on the world today, and if they made it through this great worldwide flood, they had to have been a passenger on the ark. And so I believe that he would have done a basic structure putting Noah and the birds up on the upper deck. Why? They need the most light. And the light, which is the roof that comes from the top, and I should kind of point that out to you, um, this isn't really a great model of it, but you kind of get the idea. I believe the window that he built was actually a raised area on that roof. You see that little ridge there that's raised up? In other words, it was raised up, and there was actually levered windows, so he could close it off, but it would have allowed the light to stream in the length of the arc down that main passageway and or allowed the fresh air you know, to come in through there at the same time. And with the open passageways, and I think that there probably may have been some grating or some openings in this upper floor that would allow some light to come down uh, into the lower decks a little bit. Um, this is a ramp. I think he would have used a ramp system to go from the different decks. Didn't have to do a lot of them. If you put them centrally located, well, it's easy to load and unload uh, the arc for that. And in this particular model, each one of these compartments is equivalent of an Egyptian granary. Each one of these little compartments would have held at least 5,000 bushels of food. And this passageway would have been at least about 14 feet wide, 14 feet high. Large enough that you can take large animals in and out and be able to move uh, things in and about, you know, to do it. And those are key areas, uh, key design features that you have to have to make the ark work. It's got to be able to support itself and yet be very economical in its use for capacity and storage and so forth. 
So essentially what this next chart does is, is an effort to try to depict what my model is doing in that you see the end of the arc, which is like this end, and you see the three decks, you see the passageways, and the passageways, if there had been grading and opening, it would have allowed some light and air to make their way down through there. And then you see the ramp structure, the door off to the side. So when he loaded the ark, he loaded from the top down, probably above the animals and on the, and you don't want to be pushing an elephant up a ramp. You want him walking down a ramp, if you know what I mean. And uh, so he could have taken to the different decks. This little crosshatch, little pattern here is indicating the same space from a plan view looking top down from the side and from the end, showing that those little rectangular compartments would have been uh, located in that structure. One of the key issues about the arc is has to do with uh, ventilation. You've got to have air moving in this thing. If, if we get stagnant air, I mean, you, can you imagine being in, in a box with an animal for a year? Need a little ventilation, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that, and by the way, what do you do with all the waste material? I mean, you know, you know, uh, what John referred to as poop, you know. Um, I believe that the solving of the waste material is actually the solution to how you get fresh air. By building working compost piles at the far ends, of this, making a compartment to seal off where you pour the waste material into, throw a little handful of lime in there, you build a working compost pile, turns it all into dust, into dirt, but it produces tremendous heat. And that heat is venting off the toxic gases from the waste material. And by putting it at the ends, it distributes it off from the ends of the arc as it moves around, and it allows the fresh air intake to come down through the center and be distributed out. When we did a thermal analysis on this, we discovered that there was about a five degree separation in each deck. That at about the first deck, it probably closed in with the animals would have been about 80 degrees. Second deck, about 85 degrees. The lower deck, about 90 degrees. And by the way, those are the optimum temperatures for the particular animals that we're going to have stored on there. All right, next slide, please. Now, let's talk about supportability. What are we going to use for food? Well, they had grains and fruits and seeds, and those were the kinds of things they'd been eating before. I believe that's what they brought on. They had to bring enough food on there for everybody to live for a year. And in that case, the animals didn't eat one another. They ate grains and foods and things like that. So I believe that he brought grains, and he harvested all that, stored it, and he brought it on. He stored it on the ark with him uh, for him to use. And approximately, uh, he would probably have brought on something on the order of about 405,000 bushels of grain, you know, for it, um, which uh, I'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, I put down milk and milk progress. Maybe the goats could have been used to milk, you know, but you know what? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because I don't believe there was any reproductivity that was going on on the ark. And as a result, there wouldn't have been those products. The reason why there wouldn't have been any reproductivity is because an animal scientist once told me Animals will not reproduce if they don't have light. Man is the only one that reproduces in the dark. All the animals need light. That's what they use. And so if you put them all in the ark and close it off, nobody's going to be doing anything. You know, and they're in the ark. Um, he had to solve the water storage and water distribution system. Now, the water distribution system is no problem. We don't have any problem about getting water because you remember the first 40 days and 40 nights, it was raining cats and dogs anyways. He could collect all the water he wanted. But he did have to have water to be able to be distributed. And I believe there would have been interior plumbing and troughing that would have been used to distribute it. And I believe he had set up valve systems and other things just like the ancients were able to do in those days. And so he could have distributed water. Can you imagine feeding everybody and giving everybody a drink, you know, once a day? Uh, the lighting we mentioned before, I, I believe he used that roof, a window up at the top, uh, probably torches and grates and probably torches down on the lower deck. Simple torches would have given him the adequate light. If you've got amphibians and reptilians down there, they don't need much light anyways, and you don't want to be down there with, you know, anyways with them. So uh, he didn't have to go down there very much. And we talked about waste disposal and ventilation. Uh, you know, before, by the use of working compost piles at the end. You don't want to throw the waste material off of the ark. You don't want to get rid of it because it's going to change your weight and balance. You want to maintain weight and balance, and very gradually you would be coming up out of the water 
uh, toward the end of the flood uh, as a result. Next chart. Now, for you engineers, uh, and this is the this is the stuff that we got into for the engineers. Um, PCAFSA is what we call a physical configuration on it or a functional configuration on it. This is when we actually check all the design against the actual structure that's been built against the drawings that we determine that we physically have the things that match the drawings that we built and a functional configuration on us, we actually use it and see if it in fact works. We know that the ARC passed the PCA and the FCA test because it floated. It was there and it worked. It made it. The system qualification test, which is a standard in all engineering disciplines, was exactly 960 hours. 960 hours is raining 40 days and 40 nights. You put it to the maximum test that you possibly can. And we know that the mean time between failure, the MTBF, was exactly 8,760 hours because that is the number of hours in a single solar year, and it worked and did not fail for the first year. So its mean time between failure was 8,760 hours. Now, there, we, when we do those engineering numbers and we do all those tests, we come down to a final number we call A sub O. And A sub O is the operational availability. And we logistics engineers and systems engineers, that's our number one number. That is what we are working to. And the best number that you can have is a one. And what you're building is a number something up to one. So if you ever hear a design engineer talking about the A sub O is .9998, what he's talking about is he's trying to build the operational availability up to as close to a perfect one as he possibly can. And man knows there is no system that we can build that will ever reach a one. The A sub O on every satellite, every system is at least three nines and an eight or something. However, in the case of the ARC, where it's the first design that we can declare is has an A sub O of one. Because it was not designed by man. It was designed by God. And he's perfect and he's one. And therefore, we declared it had the first design system to an ace above one. And by the way, if you're logistics engineer and system engineers, you should be cheering and clapping at this point. Right. <laughs> From the standpoint of what it took to develop the ark, we have 100 years to do this. Noah was told at the age of 500 to build the ark. At the age of 600 years old, he got in the ark and the flood began. It wasn't 120 years, as it says there in Genesis 6-3. It was 100 years. That 120 years that talks about in Genesis 6-3 is a prophecy about you and me, not about Noah. It's a prophecy of the whole world about how many years I will tolerate a man, a mortal man. And the basic tasks that were required to develop the ark included lumbering. You remember the number of board feet of white oak that we had to go and harvest, gopher wood, chemicals that had to be processed, petroleum-based products had to be distilled and made into a waterproofing agent. The actual arc construction, including the build mounds and scaffolding and other things that had to have been done. All of the cages and internal construction, all of the internal rooms that would have had to have been built is a major task. Agriculture, you had to grow for several years all of the necessary foods that would have been taken onto the ark. This is a major undertaking for a man with three sons, um, including granaries to store all of the grain to bring it on, including temporary stockyards to hold all the animals before he actually loads them onto the ark. Now, how in the world did one man and three sons, even given a hundred years, possibly do that? Well, that's where we have the wonderful term subcontractors comes in. And the government, I used to be a government contractor, a subcontractor, and there's lots of tasks the government used to have me building on that I thought they were absolutely nuts to have them building that. But since they were paying me, I was happy to do the work and do it for them. And I'm certain that the contractors that worked for Noah at that particular time thought Noah was nuts. But as long as he's paying them, why not go ahead and build the thing for the guy? And so I think other men built the ark. I think men who died in the flood helped Noah build the ark. I think that's how Noah warned them and was a preacher of righteousness. They were asking, what are you building, Noah? I think there was a lot of people involved with the building of the ark. To the chagrin, they did not join in with it. Now let's talk about the passengers that were on the ark. And this is probably the most interesting uh, part of the dilemma of how do we get all of the 
all of the survivors of the flood onto the ark? And how do we have enough food for them to come on? The um, In this little pattern here, I've indicated Noah and his family. I've given each one of those couples a 900-square-foot little townhouse <laughs> and little private quarters and so forth, and I've given them, uh, so that totals up to 3,600 square feet. So on the top deck, up there, kind of in the center, where the best fresh air comes in, that's where I put Noah and his family. And then we took the birds, and the birds are very interesting because we can put a lot of birds in, a, in an area by building aviaries, by building structures for the birds to sit on and so forth, and we can kind of cage it in and uh, so forth. And I think he would have built aviaries in the upper deck. And now the question is, how many birds? There are in the world today 9,000 different species of birds, and if you recall, we have two of each for the unclean, but we have to go by sevens for the clean. So about two-thirds of all of the species are clean. So I've divided, and I took 3,000 of those 9,000 as unclean times two. That's 6,000 of those birds. And then I took 6,000 clean ones, and I made it, the worst-case analysis, I made it seven pairs. So it's 14 birds of each clean species. So that's 84,000 clean birds for a total of 90,000 birds. And then based on the square footage of the size, average size of a bird, how much area could we put 90,000 birds into? That's where we came up with two cubic feet for each bird, or approximately 180,000 cubic feet. And that 180,000 cubic feet would have been like that whole half of the upper deck, the third, third top deck. We would have turned it into a great aviaries for the birds to be in there. All right, next one. By the way, that goes to show you Noah was really with the birds. Okay. Now, the next group that I've got is the amphibians and reptilians, you know, the creepy crawly things. Uh, there's about 3,000 species of amphibians, 6,000 uh, reptilians, and I can guarantee you, as a good Jew, there's none of those clean whatsoever. So it's just times two, 18,000. They take a little bit more room to wiggle, uh, 54,000 cubic feet, and on the lowest deck, they would have taken approximately that area of the deck. Next one. The mammals is our greatest group to take into account. There are 4,000 species of mammals in the world, two-thirds are clean. That would have meant about 1,320 of them are unclean times two, 2,640 of those animals. And of the remaining clean animals, 2,680 times 14, that's 37. So we'd have had approximately 40,000 mammals, you know, on board. They need quite a bit more room. They need about 12 cubic feet uh, each. And... I believe that he wouldn't have brought mature animals on. I believe he would have brought young animals that would have grown in the course of being on board. As they consumed food, they would have grown in size. But initially, they would have been the smaller uh, type animal. And so that would have required 481,920 cubic feet. So that means about three-quarters of the second deck and a little more than half of the lower deck is what it would have taken. Now, we'll put a summary together of where the passengers are at, and it will tell us the remaining space that we can store food with. Number one indicates where Noah's at on the upper deck. Two is where the birds are at. Four is the mammals. Number three is the amphibian and reptilian. And this crosshatch pattern that we see here on the upper deck and on the second deck reflects the amount of storage area on the second and third deck, of where we could have food. How much food could we possibly store in that space that I have left? In that amount of storage, I can carry 450,000 bushels or 567,000 cubic feet, and that's equivalent of 227 railroad boxcars or two grain elevators 60 feet in diameter that go 10 stories high to hold the grain. That sounds like a lot of food, but is that enough food for all the animals for a year? That's what we have to determine. And in this particular case, this is where this is where us logisticians kind of do our thing. We build what is called an algorithm. We find key factors related to our species and our animals, and we use other quantifiable techniques to build a mathematical equation that we can work a probability off of. We have to translate these things into numerics. So what we did was we got, we found out that the animals basically 
consume in their average uh, lifetime a certain number of weight um, of food, and we also know the average weight of the animals, of all of the species of the animals. We know these particular numbers now as a result of the flood. And basically what we were told was that the average weight is 45 pounds. That of all the average of all the animals we got on board, we've got to solve the problem for enough food for an average 45 pound animal. And we also were able to discover that it will eat 20 times its weight in a year. So that tells us by weight how much food we got to have. So the way this works is we work this algorithm. We have 148,000 creatures and we have 450,000 bushels to feed them. We took the 90,000 birds and we gave them 90,000 bushels. Basically just solved them real quickly. Said, okay, they're fed. We took the amphibians and reptilians. We gave them 18,000 bushels and we solved their problem. The question is, do we have enough for the mammals? And they, we only have 342,000 bushels left. That means that we have 8.5 bushels per animal. If we take the weight of the bushels, which is about 60 pounds a bushel, and we take that and we divide that by 20, then we can determine how many, what's the average weight of the animal we can support with that amount of food. And it comes out to, on this analysis, the average weight of the animal is 25 and a half pounds. That's too low. The animal kingdom world and animal scientists say, no, the average animal is 45 pounds. That if we'd have carried that number of mammals, we don't have enough capacity, given this worst-case analysis of an 18-inch cubit, to accomplish the job. Well, maybe he had a bigger cubit. He could have a little more space. Or maybe our assumption about the number of animals isn't right. And the scripture says, by sevens. What if it was just seven animals, like the sages of Israel said it was? Instead of seven pairs, it was seven animals, with that odd animal being that extra clean male animal that was sacrificed at the end of the flood. So now we're going to go back and readjust how many animals we have and how much storage space we have. Again, reviewing, this is our optimum analysis. I've now changed the number of clean animals from 14 now down to 7. I'm not carrying 90,000 birds, I'm carrying 48,000 birds. That means Noah now fits on the same side with the birds. And that's the space that we need to support the birds. Now, on the mammals, by the way, there's no change in the amphibians and reptilians. Them creepy crawly things all took up the same space they always took up before. <laughs> but in the case of the mammals, instead of extending down in here, instead of 40,000 animals, I only have to support 21,000 animals now. Because I've got seven of the queens instead of 14. So I need less space. Obviously, by using less space for the animals, I get more space for food, right? So the next chart shows us how this is how much food I can now carry. Whereas before I had this amount. And instead of 450,000 bushels, I'm now carrying 764,000 bushels of food, which is uh, way more than 227 boxcars of food. And in fact, if we run the algorithm again in our, in our best case analysis, I now have 698,000 bushels left. That's 32.6 bushels per animal instead of 8.5. That means I'm prepared to support the average weight of a 97.8 pound animal, not 40 pounds. I now have proved that Noah not only could have done this, it is highly probable that he did this. Highly probable. In fact, the same kind of analysis, we would have made a determination to this point and said that satellite can be launched into space. That system will work. Before we even build it, we know this will work, according to logistics engineering analysis. Next chart. After the flood, certain things began to change, which are evidences that we have present with us today. For example, the atmosphere changed. We're told that we got the four seasons. As a result, rain began to come from the sky. Direct sunlight. We got a rainbow for the first time, which is caused by direct sunlight going through a moist atmosphere. And... Um, can you imagine Noah trying to explain to those people, you know, before the flood, what the world was going to be like afterwards? Can you imagine him saying, well, it's going to rain? They've never seen rain. Let him go one step further. There's going to be four seasons. They've never heard, seen or heard of cold before. And that when the rain falls and it's cold, it'll become a white powder. And I'm certain at that point they knew Noah was nuts. And... Um, 
And your body is going to be like the body of the Lord. You know what that means? That means that you can sit down at a table, eat a piece of fish, get up from the table, and walk through the wall. That means that you can float up into the air, into the clouds. That's what his body did. And by the way, Isaiah chapter 60, I believe in verse 20, says something like this. Who are these, who are these who fly like clouds and go to the lattices like doves? It's talking about people that are going to be in the kingdom. You and I will be able to fly in the kingdom. That's how you're going to be raptured. When you get your new body, you're going to fly up into the clouds. Now, how in the world could you possibly do that? I can tell you exactly how you can do that. All you have to do is have the right organs and enzymes in your body to change the molecular density of your molecules and make your molecules weigh less than air. And there's things in nature that do that already. Oh, all kinds of things, you know. we got all kinds of energies that can go right through walls, and it has to do with molecular density. And I believe that God's going to come give us the body that we can adjust, adjust our molecular density. And as a result, disease will have no effect on you. Amen. You'll just automatically adjust to it. And I believe you'll eat the tree of life and it'll re rejuvenate that body so that you'll be able to live forever Hallelujah. as a result. Now, in this particular case, the transition, we also saw the transition in diet. As a result, man is told for the first time to eat meat. And specifically, Noah is able to eat clean meat. It says that Noah sacrificed clean animals. We didn't have the Torah yet. How do you know which animals was clean and which one were unclean? Which proves that the Torah is eternal. And the principles of the Torah existed even before Moses gave it. And they, will, they exist even after other times. Just like what Messiah said about the Torah. That the Torah will not go away before heaven and earth goes away. It's there forever. The animal kingdom began to change. Genesis 9.1 says that God put the enmity of man into the animal kingdom, and they were afraid of each other and afraid of man, and they began to prey upon each other. And the animal kingdom began to pray. We know that in the kingdom, the big change that's supposed to come there is the lion will lay down with a calf, and the wolf will lay down with a lamb. It says they'll, they'll not eat each other, and they will not be afraid of each other in the kingdom. It says a child will play by the hole of an ass, and there will be no concern for the mother whatsoever. The lifespan of man is what began to really change after the flood. Remember the 912 years? Well, Noah went on after the flood to go ahead and live to the ripe old age of 950 total years. His sons, who are now experiencing direct sunlight, Seth only lives to, Shem rather lives to 600 and the others that follow and descend, you notice the curve is coming down. You see this curve right here? By the way, that curve matches the known curve, energy dissipation curve of every other thing that exists in creation. That curve matches the energy dissipation curve of every other form of energy in the world because as a result of direct sunlight, which is energy, it produces this very long linear line way out to the far end where David said a man's life is three score and ten, seventy years, or if he lives a long time, four score, eighty years. Now you remember where God said, I will not um, labor with man, the flesh of man, for more than 120 years. Now this is, I don't think this is the direct interpretation of that passage, but I find it kind of interesting. We get down to Moses, he lived to be 120 years, and after him, people don't live beyond 120 years. Kind of interesting the way that fits in. So we're down in the lifespan. So we have a very short lifespan as a result of that. I want you to take note about this chronology and these generations. Abraham was 50 years old before Noah died. They all lived at the same time. Those ten generations lived at the same time. And it's not a hard stretch for Abraham to have heard the story about Noah and the flood in his lifetime. To have then, four generations later, given it to Moses so that it could be repeated to us highly in an accurate manner as the way the Torah was given to us. A very accurate recounting of Noah and the flood, getting it from Noah directly. The final point I want to make to you about this particular thing is the scripture says this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days before the flood they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that was said by Yeshua 2,000 years ago. We can look at a lot of parallels between the story of Noah and the ark 
and see a lot of parallels to us in this final generation. There's a tremendous number of parallels. Yeshua draws attention to them. The people did not understand the cataclysmic changes that were coming to the earth. They had no concept of how God could do such things. They had no idea to understand how the world was going to change on them, how natural daily things that are true and common for us would be dramatic changes for them. And in the same way, the Messiah is saying to us, things that are common to us will not be the same in the kingdom. In the kingdom, things are going to be different. And it will come as a result of the cataclysmic changes that come rapidly and quickly that the judgment that will be brought by the Lord. And so the point being here that's being made is that the people that didn't understand the suddenness of the changes that were coming, they were ill-prepared. Right now today, in the scientific community, in the midst of all that we know and we understand, the major debate in the scientific community is over the issue of what we call catastrophic change. The majority of the scientific community cannot accept the idea that cataclysmic and sudden changes can come to the earth. If you remember Mount St. Helens, you know, a few years ago, that really shook people up in the scientific community. You know why? Because two years later, at the bottom of Spirit Lake, they had petrified trees. Petrified wood, in two years, had turned into stone. And they used to say, geologists said, that takes thousands of years for that to happen. And it just happened right in front of their eyes in the matter of a couple short years. And the scripture alludes to that these changes that are getting ready to take place are like unto those changes. And that the world is going to have a hard time coming to terms with this. And they're not going to believe it. And they're going to make the same mistake that was made back at the previous judgment, which was the judgment by water. And in this case, the judgment by fire. Amen? Amen. All right. The last thing that I would share with you about this is the following. This is an interesting story in the Bible. It's one of the earliest stories in the Bible. And most of you have lived in a world in which the scientific community has basically said, you can't really believe in the Bible. It's a bunch of archaic stuff. I would submit to you that the story of Noah's Ark is not only feasible, it's highly probable and probably is true from a scientific standpoint. There's only one story in front of this one, and that's called creation. There's only one story in front of this. And I don't think it's a big leap of faith if you can see and understand how God judged the world the first time to understand that God maybe created the whole place to begin with. Since the scientific community has just now accepted the idea, I guess it all started at one moment. Do you remember back, folks, in our generation, 20 years ago, if a guy suggested the Big Bang Theory, he was literally laughed out of the university. Laughed out of the university. Today, the exact opposite exists. Anybody that doesn't agree with the Big Bang Theory is considered an idiot. That's how quickly the scientific community has changed their theory. And they used to say that the entire universe had been around, oh, at least 150, 160 billion years. And then we put Hubble up, and they were able to build what we called the Hubble time constant. They were able to measure light in a new and unique way in the universe, and in so doing, determine the age of the universe. And to their shock and chagrin, the universe has not been around as long as what they thought. In fact, they still believe it's about 11 to 12 billion years old, now, you've got to understand, if you come from 150, 160 billion years down to 11 to 12, you've made a lot of progress. <laughs> and they're still continuing to make progress on that. Not the least of which is one of the most stunning discoveries that just was announced publicly about a month ago. They have discovered there is something out there more than the universe. They have found that there is a force, an existence of something that used to be just dark space that is more powerful than anything they have found in the universe. They can feel its effects, they can measure its force, and it is off the scales, way beyond anything. They have found there is a power and there is an energy that is not in the universe that goes and is way more powerful than the universe. 
I believe they have found the first evidence of the existence of God. And they just don't quite know it yet. But they're learning. And uh, But the scripture says they won't learn at all before this thing will all be over and done with. But we see the evidences coming in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this conference. Thank you for these brethren. And Lord, I would pray that you would use this discussion about Noah's Ark and evidence of that your word is true, physical evidence that what you've said did happen way back a lot of years ago. Lord, that you'd build our faith and confidence to believe not only the things of the past, but believe the things of the future and the promises that you've made to us concerning the world that we'll be living in soon, the changes that will be coming. And Lord, we would pray that we would be a people who instead of like those in the past who didn't understand, that we would be a people who would understand, that we would be like Noah, that we would get in our ark of faith and be prepared for the events that are going to come upon this world. And we look forward, Lord, to the day that you're going to come back and make all the big changes to the earth and to the creation and restore all things to yourself. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network.